Welcome back to Protean Pirate Radio, where you can hear stories from our humble ship as we navigate out of this capitalist shithole toward warmer waters. I'm your host, Mel B., and I recently had the immense privilege to sit down with Shango, a comrade who has been on the front lines in the battle against police brutality in the ongoing uprising in Nigeria. We dug into the SARS units of Nigeria, discussed the NSARS movement, and began to imagine what a brighter future might look like. I want to make a short editorial note. During the interview, I referred to the date of the Lakey Tollgate Massacre as happening on the 21st of October, 2020, when the exact date is the 20th of October, 2020. As I only noticed the wrong date until after the interview concluded, I want to make that correction now. Before we dive into the interview, I want to give this conversation a content and trigger warning. We talk about some extremely emotional, traumatic moments that have occurred in Nigeria, both in the last month and in years past. These events include conversations about death and extreme state violence meted out to protesters and civilians alike. Please proceed with caution if you are sensitive to these subjects. Thank you. Now, on to the interview. Before we begin, would you like to introduce yourself and tell the listeners about the organization that you belong to? Yes, my name is Comrade Shongo. I belong to the Movement for African Emancipation, which is um, an organization based in Nigeria. We are a revolutionary pan-Africanist and socialist organization, actively interact and necessary change. We believe Nigeria and our necessary change in the way Nigeria and our continent is governed. We start from the historical understanding that the countries of our continent are new colonial entities. And this is responsible for the creation of the massive deprivations that have been wrought on the continent, which has been at the behest of the imperialists and their new colonial puppet leaders. We believe socialism is the only solution to the crisis we have where a huge disparity exists between the poor and the few extremely rich. But we are Pan-Africanists because any revolutionary change must take account of the context that imperialism has created, which Amical Cabral calls a negation of the historical process. So that, that's, that's about us, really. Very cool. Very cool. So to start, you know, today we're talking about, you know, the demonstrations in Nigeria in the last couple of weeks against police brutality and particularly SARS. So I think it might be worthwhile to give our listeners a brief bit of background about who the SARS were. Uh, they stand for special anti-robbery squads and it's a uh, extension of yes. policing in Nigeria. Yes, you're completely right. They stand for a special anti-robbery squad. They were formed in the 80s when we had um, quite a lot of cases of armed robberies under the assumption that they were going to be special units to, to deal with armed robberies. But to be honest, we can't really talk SARS without talking about police brutality in general. What SARS has been, you know, Essentially, they, they were given specific powers more than your usual police. So they, they you know, uh, basically a very wide remit to, to tackle um, armed robbers. 
but they, they basically morphed into what the police is, but in a special way. So what the police do, they do better in the sense of being brutal. So essentially the police, um, as Fela Anukulako Kuti, the musician, has explained, is that um, within the police, it's like the, the divisional police officer is the bank manager. And um, the inspector general of police, the overall boss, is the uh, managing director. And the police essentially function as, as an arm that takes money from citizens and uh, enrich themselves. You know, in, in, a, in a situation in which they are generally fully funded at the lower levels, and this has been always been encouraged. So when you now create especially heavily armed sport, um, <laughs> they are going to take that to the next level. So they brought to their net what we call cyber criminals, what we call here Yahoo Yahoo. So rather than it even being a case of them tackling armed robberies, they were more concerned about maybe you look like uh, a fraudster, you know, an internet fraudster or a criminal. So if you have you, you, you have a nice car, you dress well, you have a nice phone, you have an iPhone, you know, that that you're supposed to be poor. So why do you have of these. That, that means the only way you could, you could get those things were, was to be a cyber criminal. But the reality is that's just a cover for them extorting people. So if they find you, it's not as if they're going to try to take you to the, to the law or take it lawfully. They will actually drag you to an ATM and take out all your money or ask you to do bank, bank transfers. Or if you're locked up, someone will have to come and bail you with a lot of money. They can just pick up anybody on the street, innocent people and um, just take them to their station, accuse them of armed robbery, ask them to confess under duress. And basically, uh, it's all about extortion of money. They, 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 they kidnap people, they torture them. And so they, they basically from believed to be the actual armed robbers that they were meant to tackle. Now, just in, in summary, it's not just about... SARS, like I say, SARS is a, is, is just does what the police does more extremely. Regularly, young people are picked up, not only young people, older people too, are picked up and taken to police stations and, and just locked up and waiting for somebody to come and pay a ransom money, which they would refer to as bail. There are lots of innocent people in the prisons because nobody was there to... So it's a very deep, rotten system within the police force. Yeah, I would say that we have very similar uh, outlooks on policing here in the United States as well. So um, it's definitely one giant racket that criminalizes a lot of innocent folks, mostly poor folks, and puts them in jail for the enrichment of a few. So essentially, this is the sort of militarized wing of corrupt policing system and uh, Amnesty International was saying uh, in re recent articles that they have essentially been accused of extrajudicial killings um, because they don't seem to have any or they didn't have any sort of oversight that would penalize them for the brutality that they are exhibiting against citizens of Nigeria. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's a particular notorious um, SARS in the east of the country. I, I, I'm not from the east, so I'll get the pronunciation wrong, but it's Akuzu or Akuzu or something like that in, in Anambra. Um, you can check it out. Essentially, it's like a concentration camp. To understand that this is actually fascism in practice, really. And, and people were uh, just kidnapped and taken there and tortured brutally and then 
murdered and probably for organ harvesting, just to take the organs of their bodies, because you can sell those too. So this is really just about primitive accumulation of wealth. And uh, there is no oversight, nobody, nobody cares really. It's just an example in, in that part of the country. The SARS unit in Abuja, the office is referred to as an abattoir. Abattoir where you actually butcher animals. So if it has such a name, then you can understand what goes on in these places. Right. So these demonstrations against police brutality and uh, against SARS specifically uh, from my own research first began in 2017. Does that sound about right? And then the movement was revitalized no, this actually, past month. Is that not correct? The, in terms of demonstrations, what it is is that since uh, even I think prior to 2017, but let's, let, let's say 2017, there was a, a tag on Twitter and SARS. That's when it started. It was just a Twitter campaign, you know. You had a, a Twitter personality behind it. He goes by the name Sega Link. And, uh, and he, he, said, he suddenly raised a lot of awareness and people could call him and tell him that I've got it with SARS or I had this. And, you know, it was like kind of semi one man campaign with a Twitter hashtag, but nothing physical. And I'll come to that later because there has been a failure of the left to take issues like this seriously. It's always about economic justice and such. So they have been completely absent in the leadership of building resistance to, to this to, to police brutality, which captures so many, so much of the populace. And also, I would say the, the reason why we're even talking about it now is because it captured a lot of middle-class youth. Whereas, you know, right. um, the left should have been, you know, in the lead in challenging this. So now, what revitalized it? Well, there's a context here. People don't come out on the streets, even for anything, just very infrequently we have massive demonstrations like this. There's usually some event that sort of encapsulates yes. and it becomes the flashpoint for demonstrations of this size. We we experienced that in May in the United States. So Yeah. But just speaking about in general in Nigeria, you know, it, it has we had actually a culture of, of apathy and passivity and powerlessness. Let me put it like that like that. People feel powerless mm. and the, you know they had a massive the last time we had a massive demonstration was 2012 and uh that was to do with ec an economic issue uh, you know increasing for price and and you know it, it, it was huge uh, but people felt betrayed at the end of it by the leaders by the by the labor by the labor leaders who called the strike and then called it off uh, without achieving anything really so uh, in this context, in the last, since 2019, there's been a group, which I've been, you know, there's a coalition I belong to, which is called the Coalition for Revolution, who have been pushing for, you know, um, protests under the hashtag revolution now, you know, and the numbers have been few, but even with those few numbers, they have been heavily suppressed by the police. But we kept on going and going. And just on October 1st, we had a, the biggest demonstration we've had in a while. And I think it was energizing, you know, for people being under you know, brutal repression, brutal in terms of the economy. That is a context to this. Then one of the leaders or the key personality behind revolution now, his name is called Omoye Lee Shure. He's under arrest. He went on Twitter. There, there was an incident 
that happened where the, the SARS was captured on video, brutalizing somebody, killing the person probably, shooting at the person and, and whatever. And before I just come on to that, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, very key, and people have been watching this, and there have been various incidences of police brutality, and people have talked about them, had a little bit of them Lives Matter. Um, mm -hmm. But key to this anyway is that Shore um, started to challenge celebrities who have huge following among young people. He started by challenging Bonaboy. That was before the whole SARS thing blew up. That why doesn't he su su support revolution? And then when this, the whole thing about somebody being attacked in Delta State came out and was viral on Twitter, he called for protests. And uh, he, he challenged an in, uh, a celebrity called um, Naira Mali, who actually backed down. But basically, just sort of um, grew steam and, uh, and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, so, and so the demonstration was called on Wednesday, the 7th of October. In the beginning, I was there, and there were very few people. But I think, you know, with the celebrities coming on board, I think that that's energized people. And then all of a sudden, you, you started to see thousands and thousands of people coming out. Right. So what was the reaction to these demonstrations as they got bigger? There are many reports that there was... Some of them were met with violence from reactionary groups or from the police. What did that look like on the ground? Well, the, the police only know how to be brutal, but I think they were initially shocked by the size. You know, remember you were not allowed to protest. So they brought out the thugs, which are the political thugs who normally work for the politicians during election time. Um, they arm them, they pay them maybe small amounts of money from 500 to 1,500. Uh, 500 is just under a dollar, just for your, for your context, to arm them with knives and they attacked protesters. That didn't work. They, they burned cars and, and stuff. They didn't stop it, but it, it, it started to change the whole dynamic, you know? Right. Sent fear around. And then, the, the, then the, the next stage was to infiltrate the, the protesters with these armed thugs rather than attacking them, plant them in, and then get them to commit acts of violence. So you see these protesters are being violent. And then you call out, the, uh, before we get to the horrible events of uh, October 21st, this was, this was the timeline, you know, how, uh, how, things, how things went. I will leave <laughs> coming back, coming yeah. to the 21st for now, but that was just the desperation it was like you could see them they couldn't quite comprehend what was going on they tried all the tricks in the book trying to maintain world. control essentially because they knew they were losing it yeah yeah so then the inspector general pledged to disband sars on the 11th and how have the demonstrations and the messaging sort of pivoted since that news broke do folks have any faith that they're going to actually disband these uh, squads or that there's going to be any change or do they, are they continuing on because, you know, there is no faith there and they want to make sure that this reform or this change happens. Since 2017, they've promised to do something or other about, um, they're picking them, they claim picking them off the streets. You know, they have reformed them. They have, limited them to the desk, whatever it is. Um, so you had four years of that. The initial announcement, maybe it would have met better if they hadn't immediately said, well, we're just going to have a new group. It's not going to be called SARS anymore, you know? 
that's changing the name. And then at the same time, you know, there were reports of SARS still being on the streets. And then you are also brutalizing the protesters. You're saying, the protesters are saying no more police brutality and you are using police brutality to stop them. That, that, that means they, they can't take you at your word. We know about words. For example, there's a word they spread up all over the place. Bail is free, bail is free. But the very strong reality is that bail is not free. So if the same people telling you bail is free, you know it's not free, or they tell you the police is your friend, then, then you should check yourself when they promise to do things. I, I really think a lot of the protesters probably wanted to something they could hold on to, even if it wasn't much. But the reality of, of this was they were just being played, played with. They, they could see it very well. So the government came out with five things they said they will do, you know, which included, we'll give you a new, a new name called SWAT. And somebody among the protesters dropped something, which for, it doesn't actually represent all protesters, but let's just take that as a minimum. Five things the government must do in return. One of those things is, is justice, right? Right. There's all, all these police officers have murdered people, kidnapped, and all the cases are obvious. What are you going to do about that? Let's start there. Let's see you in action doing something about those instances. Uh, apart from what SARS has done, during the protest, the police murdered people. Yeah. Where is the justice for the, the murdered protesters? That, that's one of the key, you know, yeah. things that, that really meant people were not going to cut off the demonstrations. I think a lot of people wanted something minimal, you know, let's just... Um, people were ready to, to leave the streets, many people, not everybody. Um, but, you know, the fact the government couldn't even commit to that, you know, betrayed their intent. Right. Well, on that point, you know, this next question most definitely is painful. Um, can you walk us through what happened at the Lucky Tollgate in Lagos uh, on the 21st of October? Um, that massacre kind of rippled across the entire world. And I was wondering if you could give us sort of a rundown of what happened on that horrible day. Yeah, you're right. It is painful because I think many of us are traumatized by it. It took me quite a few days to even get myself back thinking um, properly. Uh, even though I, I think personally, I would have predicted that that would have happened. It was, it was where it was heading to. So, Another thing that's actually very painful is that we are being gaslighted right now. Yeah. We are being told what you saw, you didn't see. It's fake news. So it's a very difficult thing to talk about, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had to check my senses, really. I had to ask a journalist, because they're saying people didn't die. Well, well, what do you think? You know, okay, so now let, let, let's get back to how I put it as what happened that day. And I actually want to start a little bit earlier than the, mm. the massacre, just to give it a little bit of context. Um, that day, I think the protests had now reached a stage. The protesters were determined to shut down the economy, like economic life of major cities. And they had now been to the protest, not just middle class and maybe, you know, a segment of working class youth and such but the real downtrodden. From where the thugs were recruited, the political thugs that have been attacking the protesters, there is massive 
deprivation among them. And I think they saw that as a chance for them to join in. I saw this. They, were, they, they wanted to shut down the streets. They didn't want anybody to go to work. There's been a lot of lies told also about their role. But, um, for example, people claiming that they were extorting people for money, the usual things, they're hoodlums who extorted. wasn't true. They really wanted to join in and turn this into, you know, this about also economic justice, social justice, yes, justice for police brutality. And that's what they responded to that day. In, and while they were joining in and having their own ways of protesting, they protesting their own language. You know, they, they are in their different areas. The police shot and killed a few of them. Uh, that On that day, on the 21st, a lot of lives died, not just in Lekki on that day. Um, lives that don't seem to matter, actually, too. <laughs> that, you know, ignored. A lot of lives died. And when they were killed, well, they understand the language of violence very well. They have actually been utilized on behalf of the government, on behalf of the ruling class. They killed a police officer in return. They burnt down a police station. In this atmosphere, the government, which was looking for any excuse to declare a curfew, declared a curfew. They said everybody should be home by four. This was like 12 o'clock in Lagos, and you can't get home. It's not in traffic, the roads are, are blocked off, and, and what's going on, it was very, very stupid. Right. They, they declared a curfew for four o'clock. Um, so now, we go, uh, I'm going to Lekki. The Lekki protesters insisted they were not going to go. Some, not all, they were not going to abide by the curfew, they will stay there peacefully, protest. And not only in Lekki, because I think Lekki has overshadowed a lot of... There's another zone of protest in Lagos called Alausa, which is in front of the gov government offices, of the state governor's offices, the House of Assembly, and so on. There was also an attack there that day. Amnesty International refers to it. I, I will come to that. For, for now, for Lekki, we saw quite a few videos, Instagram Live, which are confirmed by various sources to be right at the scene at the right time. Um, and we have correspondents, for example, there's a German um, TV correspondent from GW or DV, however they call it, was right there. Um, so there were thousands of bullets shot. There were definitely people dressed in, in soldiers' uniforms. They were backed up by the mobile police, which is a heavily armed unit of the police. And we have at least, last uh, uh, I could remember, but my memory might be faulty, at least 20 injured um, in hospitals that we, we are aware of. And witnesses right on Twitter, by the right time, we're talking about um, dead bodies being carried away. Up to right now, the army is denying that it ever sent any soldiers there, that there were any soldiers present. So that should be the starting point of anybody trying to doubt that people died in the first place. If people, the security services are telling you that there were no soldiers at the scene, <laughs> despite what, what the people there saw, what was seen um, on videos, you can understand that. This this isn't new to us. There, there, there's, uh, again, if I, uh, I, I refer to Fela Kuti, I spoke and sang about what they called unknown soldier. 
the soldiers will kill and then they will deny and it becomes a case of it's an unknown soldier. And in this case, it's a case of also unknown dead bodies. They, they did, I believe it very much, carry away the bodies. This happened in Zaria, a part of Nigeria, a few years ago where there was a, a heavy massacre, um, maybe up to 1,000 dead. Eventually, they denied anybody died. They buried them horribly in mass graves, and eventually they now admitted that about 300 died. Wow. So, so the reality is, uh, of course, uh, you know, people are uh, gaslighting us. They're telling us that what are the names of the dead? Where are their families? Where are the dead bodies? All this can be answered very straightforwardly. The <laughs> dead bodies were carried away by the soldiers. Not all, because a few people have come forward to say, the, 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 there was a body of my the body right no? um uh, and uh, and there's a lot of cases of missing persons right now you know right um i can't believe that you shoot thousands of bullets and there are lots of injured people but there are no dead people yeah Shots that's right extremely unbelievable and you know i yeah. i saw some of the so, video on instagram so, and yeah. It blows my mind, you know, that it shouldn't, but that the government continues to, in their official statements, say no one was killed, a bunch of people were injured, and now only two people were killed because Amnesty International says, well, we have reports of at least 12 people who died. Why are you lying to the international community and why are you lying to the entire country about this? It's horrible. It's horrible. I'm so sorry that that something that you collectively have had to experience again truly yeah it, it is 1984 they're telling us what the truth is and telling us what we should we should believe um uh, and um amnesty counted 10 bodies that is not counted but are saying that they, they know of 10 deaths in in Lekki. there's a right. witness who is reliable who's called dj, DJ switch she was Instagramming quite a lot of stuff. She was one of the key leaders of the protests at the Lekki Ground, and she says they were 15. They, they, they have set up fake accounts in order to discredit her, to say she said 78 or so. And understandable, people are traumatized, people are looking for their loved ones. You know, the information is going to come out slowly. Yeah. There were two dead, according to Amnesty, in, at Alausa, which is why I was saying it wasn't just Lekki. We personally, my group, have people at Alausa because it's closer to our, 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 where, where we operate from. And we know that, so, that soldiers were there. We have pictures earlier in the evening before, before it was dark. And we have reports that maybe not soldiers, but certainly police fired tear gas at the protesters there and fired bullets at them, forced them to disperse, tried to rape a few women. And you know, people in the confusion, nobody there could actually say because rather than stay there, as in Lekki, everyone tried to run away at Alausa. So Amnesty suggests that two, there were two people dead at Alausa. Going back to Lekki, background and why people will not believe and have every right to not believe what the authorities say. First of all, the CCTV that were installed at that area were taken off just before, at four o'clock. The lights were switched off. There were floodlights throughout the period in which people were posting. 
The lights were switched off. The governor has admitted that there were forces be, uh, beyond his control, the state governor. So basically admitting that he knew there would be soldiers there. And then, and then you know, the, the, the audacity to gaslight us. Basically, the people who do the gaslighting are not even asking, who gave the order? Where are the soldiers? They, they, you know, there's also evidence of soldiers leaving their barracks. You know, there's video evidence of soldiers leaving their barracks at the time they left to go to the Iraqi from their barracks. They, they, these are not unknown soldiers. These are not soldiers that just mysteriously, you know, some hidden <laughs> elements. They left the barracks right. to go to the to the, to the target area. We had, who gave the other? No one is answering that question. And I, I think no one is going to stop until that question is answered. We will not stop until that question is answered. Absolutely. Hell yes. That's absolutely something that should continue happening. Solidarity from all the way over here. Good God. Thank you for telling me about that horrific event. I know that must be pretty hard. You're still, you know, less than a week out from it happening. So thank you. I appreciate that. I can't imagine the pain that your country is going through. We have, you know, we've experienced similar pain here, but nothing uh, quite like that. Um, let's move on to something a little bit more heartening and inspiring. So in the days since, we've seen news of activists discovering and redistributing stores of COVID provisions that were sequestered away in a warehouse I've seen pictures of confiscated IDs and voter cards being returned to their owners, um, hundreds of motorcycles being redistributed from the governor's properties, I think. Um, so these, these, all of these things are continuing to happen as these demonstrations continue. And it's beautiful to see, but I also think it is certainly sort of emblematic of the desperation of an economically oppressed people that this is how they have to find relief during a horrific pandemic. And, you know, what you've told me over the course of this conversation is, you know, a very economically depressed country. Poor people are starving to death during COVID. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this as, you know, these demonstrations and just these general projects particularly the movement for African emancipation and how it's responding to these various things as they happen. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, first of all, we started off this thing um, as an NSAS protest. That's what was started as. But those of us who actually combined the hashtag NSAS with revolution now, that you couldn't combat the police brutality without also trying to have a change in the system that leads to it, you know, there was, there was a lot of debates at the beginning. If you wore a, a t-shirt to a protest ground saying revolution now, you might be told to leave. You were told not to give out flyers. You know, not, let's just have a SAS, you know, which, is, which was an illusion. This whole struggle for me has been so important in the sense that it helps to, it is, it is political education. It right. also helps to expose illusions. Um, you know, answers, people now say talking about end bad governance, end corruption, you know, things they know about. But to come to the end of this and in the middle of, you know, so-called looting, you know, you had a, you had a lot of self-righteous 
middle of class people going on about looting, regardless of that the state has been looted by a few for so long. Um, they're so concerned about the looting of a few stores and supermarkets and bring down of police stations and, and whatever. You know, uh, in the middle of all this, to now find food <laughs> for people, people have been starving. If you know the extent to which people have been starving in this country, I know this personally, directly. People have cried to me over the phone during the whole of the lockdown, a lockdown that was not even necessary in this country. People were starved out. They, were, they had no work to do. People who live on informal um, employment live day to day. People have cried to me on the phone, crying, tears, begging for food. Not one warehouse, several warehouses that was meant to be distributed to people. It just proves to them that truly they are ruled by heartless parasites. And if it is revolution, then what else will be the solution here? Yes, I, it, you know, it has been desperation. But there are people coming to tell me the deceptions. But now we're asking the question of power. I spoke at the beginning that people have felt powerless, which is why, you know, SARS went on so long, partly why, partly why. There are lots of injustices and so on, and the protests are few and far between. When you had revolutionary protests, you had very few people coming, even though there was mass support, uh, passive support. So the question of power has been asked, but people still don't want to take the necessary steps. Um, that is the task of organization, which obviously we'll, <laughs> I think we'll come into in terms of your next question. Yeah. Do you think just the events of you know finding this warehouses full of food for uh, that is meant to be for the people that have been hoarded away by the ruling class and left to rot in a warehouse, multiple. Do you think that these sort of discoveries um, is potentially a turning point where this political education can really kind of take, you know, come in to uh, help expose and bring to bear truly what you've mentioned are, are the illusions of, you know, neocolonial capitalist sort of ruling system and potentially plant the seeds for revolutionary activity that is a lasting and material effect on the people in your country. Like I said at the beginning, um, we were trying to give out flyers. Uh, various groups were trying to give out flyers, um, speaking about the need for revolution, socialist revolution and such, and changing foundations on which the country is built on the leaders and calling for a redistribution of wealth and, mm. you know, asking for, in our case, we ask for the defunding of the elites, the political elites. They, mm. they get paid huge amounts of money. And then we are told the country is broke and there's no money for people and, and, and so on. So we, we actually, in our case, call for a defunding of the political elites. And, um, you know, like I said, a lot of the fires were not well received or so on. But for my own organization, we had a fire that stood out very well because we started by helping people to connect the dots between SARS police brutality and the capitalist vampire state. And it was well received. And, you know, we have been participating with the Coalition for Revolution, where organizations are together, 
in, in helping to bring, build that consciousness. But I've always told people, and it's good to, to say it in action, that the real political education is in action, it's in struggle. We can always say so much. And the sad truth is the left had been ill-prepared to sufficiently take the lead during this period and drive it more forcefully towards winning the majority of the oppressed to the necessary revolutionary change. Otherwise, we would be actually be talking about a serious revolutionary situation on ground right now. But the reality is the left was too few in number, have done the wrong things up to this. Um, but regardless of that, this is, for us, is the time to intensify organization and political education. Right. You have to prepare the ground for the coming struggle. This struggle has been, like I said, the best political education for the but We need to firm up on that. We right. ourselves and our organization will be holding political education programs. We will be pushing for community organizing. And particularly, my organization is pushing for self-defense against police brutality to be set up in communities, community groups, to have to build, because there is no way you can say the government is, is going to give you any promises and police brutality will, will end. It is now time for people to stand up and, and organize self-defense. That's fantastic. Let's talk more about your organization, Movement for African Emancipation. You know, I've, I've read through a bit of your official website, looked at the principles that you've you've kind of, uh, your group has put forth as, as really guiding principles for how to continue organizing. What to you is the most exciting piece of your organization and what is, what is really lighting your fire uh, as you continue pushing forward these political education programs, this community self-defense? What really gets you excited about it? Our struggle actually has been a question of raising consciousness. This is a struggle everyone, you know, for us, too many in the left have not taken that seriously. We stand out in trying to push for, for raising critical consciousness. Because, you know, as Steve Biko said, the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressed oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. And, uh, you know, we have... Well, Movement for African Emancipation is a small group. It's not something actually, it is something we are proud of in a way because we, we seek to build the best leaders who can lead in periods like this. Um, it's something we wish more of the left would do. We feel, you know, that having a massive political education is crucial, um, massive organizing at the community level to build a vanguard at the same time to educate the masses. And when you say educate, I think the masses know these things. It is only a matter of drawing out what is there subconsciously or unconsciously or whatever you want to, you want to say it and to, to give also the confidence in your own power. I think it's that power, question of changing the balance of power. I'm, we, are, we are excited that we are now in a period. It's, this is a qualitative change. I looked to it like 1905 in, in, in Russia, mm -hmm. where we had a bloody Sunday. Um, this also has been a bloody Tuesday. And there's uh, only an opportunity now, you know, to raise the level of consciousness. Um, and for us, let me just say lastly that we, we think the question of Pan-Africanism is very important, but not in the sense of cultural Pan-Africanism, but revolutionary Pan-Africanism. Mm -hmm. Part of what is going on, and... I wish I had spoken about this earlier, so let me bring it in now. 
the kind of police we have is because it is a colonial police. This is the police that was created by the colonialists. The whole issue of force and the fact that lives of the people don't matter, the whole mentality came in from colonialism. You may not believe it, but up to, I think, three or four years ago, we were talking about police reform act, where even the legislators told us that we are still operating policing law that was given to us under colonialism. Mm-hmm. So, so the mentality is a colonial mentality. And if you don't fight it, if you just go to people and say, well, if you have socialism, you really have to give people you know, the confidence in self to understand that, yes, we are capable. We're, we're, you know, they have been so browbeaten, they have been so beaten down that Africans don't believe in themselves. You know, their education tells them that white is good, white is good. And you know what that means? It means capitalism is good. It means know your place. It means all of these things. So if you do not build the struggle under the banner of revolutionary pan-Africanism, which is also, you know, very socialist, then and I think it will, it, it, will, it will not work. It is also something that is popular among people, you know. Yes, people want to have pride in their cultures and, and what they want. Because they want to have self-belief. They see that things are wrong. For example, they know that they have good herbal medicines that can help them to, to cure medicines, but there's no research um, um, development, there's no research by the state to, to use those things. They know about sustainability of the environment. They know all these things need to be brought out, you know, mm-hmm. for, for people to understand that. They, and, and, and the African society was the society of collectivism generally and and even the the, the the poor live there's a very serious understanding that collectivism is popular following the gaslighting of all these police we are constantly being gaslighted that there is no other way to organize society that the only way to organize society is under neoliberal principles that we must export raw materials to the developed capitalist world and so, and that is the origin of why, this, you know, there is a primitive accumulation. The, this is not a fully developed capitalist state. This is a state in which the, the elites, the neo-colonial elites, simply exist to extract raw materials, take their commissions and their cuts, and it's a very corrupt system. And so everybody in this system tries to gain as much as possible and damn the consequences for the rest of society. And this permeated down to the police. So the police just believes that if insofar as I have a gun, I can accumulate whatever wealth I want. And that is that is the society in which we live. And that that's so understanding it is the first basis for organizing and fighting against it. Right. And this is only just the beginning in terms of, you know, you talk about having your bloody Tuesday. There's a lot of optimism there though. And uh, you know, we share in that optimism across the world. We are definitely standing in solidarity with you as you continue this extremely important work. There have been many solidarity demonstrations in the United States and across the world. Um, And activists are always looking for ways that they can materially support your projects, demonstrations, mutual aid projects, the education projects of the MAE. Are there any specific groups, uh, perhaps groups within your revolutionary coalition that could use the material support? How can we support you? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think um, 
as you say, the, the goals within the coalition, any support here should go to, you know, groups trying to intensify organization that ties police brutality to the question of socialist revolutionary change. Um, the coalition has been organizing protests prior to the NSAS issue. You know, we have other elements within this who just want to, who, who really want life to go back to normal and are okay with this brutality. So it has to be much more than NSAS and, um, and then police brutality. Mm. Um, this the coalition, as I mentioned before, have faced off with the police several times. We have integrated during protests. Um, one of the, the key personality, you know, in Shure is still confined to Abuja for daring to call for revolution in Nigeria, still has a court case. But I think the real task now is to support the left to become a serious force in their patience against the brutality of the state. For us, uh, MAE in particular, we would be trying, we try to do stuff in terms of having audiovisuals, you know, that can, you know, reach out and enlighten more people about the nature of the state. Mm. They, they, are, they are living and in terms of, you know, like I said, trying to organize defense against police brutality or, or community organization in general. But we work for those kind of things, we work, try to work as much as possible within core. And we personally focus a lot on, on education. So any support that comes, I think it, it will be helpful in whatever way. You know, the solidarity is very important and, uh, you know, helping to spread the the understanding about the fact that this is not just about policing and this is about a brutal state. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about this. I am really honored to be able to talk to you about this and to be able to offer some inroads into having more conversations among the U.S. left about what's going on in Nigeria. Let's stay in touch, please. And let me know how I can yeah. can help you. Yeah, thank you, thank you for for having us. Thanks again for tuning in to Protean Pirate Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us tonight. If you love what you're hearing and would like to support us as we navigate the uncharted waters of our dystopian present, please consider supporting us at Patreon.com/forward/slash/ProteanPod. Until next time. <laughs>